Well, uh, welcome and, and hi to all of you watching online as well. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the first page of the Bible. And um, we, we believe at Five Oaks that understanding the Bible and your place in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. And so we open our Bibles and we dig in. We're going to do some, some great digging in today. This is, this is, in a sense, our last sermon on this series on the first page, but it's not the last sermon that launches from Genesis 1. Uh, we're going to begin a series on Matthew over uh, Advent, the early chapters of Matthew, and then, and then we're going to uh, kind of go back and forth between other series and Matthew for probably a very long time. And then uh, in between, we have several series that we want to do that launch from Genesis chapter one. So there'll be short series, anywhere from two, three, four weeks long, that sort of thing. So you can look forward to that. Uh, today we're going to talk about anxiety and uh, just a sense of feeling overwhelmed. And I came across the phrase, a path through overwhelmed uh, this week. And I thought that'd make a great title for this sermon. So a path through overwhelmed is what we're going to be talking about. And we're talking about it because we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. You'll never read that verse the same again after today. Okay, I can almost guarantee that for everyone, almost everyone in this room. Verse 2 is meant to evoke fear. It's meant to evoke dread. It describes the kind of chaotic conditions that, early, that, that ancient Near Eastern people would have considered like horror-like type of conditions. We don't quite get that, and uh, I hope you'll get it by the time uh, we're done, but that, that is how it works. And so what, what follows in, um, it begins with this, these chaotic conditions, and then the rest of chapter one, what it does is it brings order out of chaotic conditions, and then it also, in some ways, tames or places boundaries over some of the chaos that uh, continues even in you know, this creation story. But as the Bible story continues in the third page of the Bible, the third chapter, the disorder and chaos, a decreation, enters back into the world through human sin. We often find ourselves overwhelmed. We find ourselves anxious, worrying about so many things. Uh, that's in many ways the new normal after Genesis 3. It's the way things are. It's built into the human condition. To be human is to be anxious. To be anxious is to be human. And we're going to see that while it's sometimes... Anxiety can be sinful sometimes. Anxiety is not always sinful. And the reason I know this is because take the perfect man. Take the second Adam who comes into our chaotic world. He experiences anxiety and a sense of being overwhelmed. And he shows us a path through overwhelmed. So let me repeat that because this is a central idea of the sermon. I want you to leave with this. The perfect man, the second Adam, comes into our chaotic world and he experiences being overwhelmed. It therefore 
can't always be a sin to experience anxiety. But the second Adam shows us a path through being overwhelmed. That's the gist of the sermon. Verse 2, horrific conditions. The rest of the chapter, bringing order out of chaos, putting boundaries around the chaos. Sin reintroduces chaos and disorder. It decreates the order of creation. Anxiety is built into our limitations as humans. We are not God. You know, we spent a lot of time on that earlier in this series. We are not God. We are not able to rise above the chaos and be just unaffected by it. We're not able to. But Jesus, who was fully human, the second Adam, shows us a way through it. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, always pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word to us. Heavenly Father, our lives are filled with moments, days, weeks, sometimes years of feeling overwhelmed, anxious, full of debilitating worries and fears. Our world is broken and we are broken. And in that world, you offer the help, and even more importantly, you offer us yourself. Your Son makes it possible to face the overwhelming with hope. Your Spirit comforts us. He leads us into your peace. Help us accept your invitation from your word to bring everything to you in prayer so that we can experience your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to have one of our younger Five Oaks once again uh, read us the first or recite for us. This time, the first two verses you can follow along in your Bibles. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Oh, I'm going to miss these, uh, these readings and recitations. That's fantastic. Um, all right, so one of my favorite commercials, which is amazing because I, every time it comes on, and I don't see commercials very often, I'm usually fast-forwarding, but every time it comes on, I say, Lois, Lois, look at this, this is one of my favorite commercials, and I described it to her the other day, and she, she, like she'd never seen it, so she doesn't, she doesn't listen. <laughs> she, she, she's actually so used to me saying, look, 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 that it's, you just, anyways, I don't know why I brought that up. So... <laughs> <laughs> Marriage counseling right here, right now. So one of my favorite commercials is a bunch of 20-somethings are running through the woods. They're being chased. They're falling. They're gasping. They come to a deserted house. It, it looks haunted. One of them says, let's hide in the attic. And the other one says, no, in the basement. And a third one says, why don't we just get into the running car? And there's a beautiful running car, you know, a nice convertible there, nice red convertible, to which the fourth one says, are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. (laughs) And they all agree, it's a good idea. And uh, there they wind up, and this is, by the way, the uh, psycho killer from the movie, you know, the fake movie that they have there. So then the voiceover, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions, it's what you do. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to <laughs> Geico. 
This is not an endorsement of Geico, just a great commercial. So I bring it up for a couple of reasons. The first one is obviously uh, stress, anxiety, all the kinds of things that that, that kind of scene evokes and that's being evoked in that, in that whole thing. But the actual reason I bring it is because of the piling of, of elements from horror movies in a humorous way. So these, these scary movie tropes that you, you'll find in so many, so many movies. You've got dark woods, a scene in the dark woods. You've got the being chased through the dark woods and the camera angle gives you the feeling as you're watching this commercial, uh, the camera angle gives you the feeling that the camera, where the camera is, is where the bad guy is, okay? And so when they fall, you think, oh no, that's it! But then they, they're able to get up and they keep going, they come to a haunted house. What happens in scary movies? Uh, there comes a point where the main person in the, you know, the main person walks into a scary attic or a scary basement, and you're sitting there going, don't open that door! Because you know what's there. And, but they do it, you know, in, in these movies, and for no good reason. It's, they don't even have to give a good reason for doing it. And, uh, and then, of course, chainsaws, um, the place where they end up hiding in the end. All these elements in a real scary movie are meant to evoke horror. So verse 2, the first three quarters of it, is meant to do the same thing for the readers, the original readers. Now, reading it, because we're not in that culture, and we've got this translation, and it's a good translation, but it says, now the earth, if you look at verse, at verse 2, it says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the face of the deep. That's as far as we're going today. We'll do a, a series on the Holy Spirit, which really is who is introduced in the rest of that verse. We'll do that later. But that translation doesn't really sound scary, and, um, but for people living in the ancient Near East, there are four elements there, four elements that evoke fear and dread. They, they communicate chaos and devastation, evil, uninhabitable, some of those terms are used for uninhabitable type landscapes where if you find yourself there and something goes wrong, you will die. That's what it's used for. And, and so it even evokes monsters, the idea of monsters. Now, you've probably never read verse 2 in that way. It sounds like a simple description of verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 3, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and Somewhere in the middle of that, there is this formless and empty type of environment. So I want to give you Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, his translation. You saw it already if you were here at the beginning of the series, but he writes, Now the land was wild and waste. Darkness was over the face of the deep abyss, okay? It sounds a little bit scarier, right? I think it does a good job. It's an accurate translation. It's more evocative. It puts us a little bit more in the shoes of the, the, the ancient Near Eastern person reading again. Now the land was wild and waste. Darkness was over the face of the deep abyss. So the four elements are wild, waste, darkness, and deep abyss. I want to show you how they evoke all those things I was talking about. Uh, we'll start with the easiest one, which is darkness, because 
we're still afraid of the dark. <laughs> All right, so we, we have a little bit more of a sense of that, so it's the easiest one to show we have the most in common with that. So think back to Exodus and the story of the Exodus before the Exodus happens, the 10 plagues, right? You remember that one of the plagues was a plague of darkness? You don't think of that usually as a plague, but it was a horrifying experience. So you have this, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. How terrifying was that? It was terrifying enough that this is one of the plagues that causes the Pharaoh to say, you can go. That was so bad that I, I'm going to let you go. Leave. But he relents. Okay, so that happens, you know, a couple of times. And even the last time that he says go, he relents eventually and tries to chase them down with his army. It's that terrifying. The darkness. Darkness is also a metaphor for anxiety and depression. You see this um, all over the Psalms, but here's one of the Psalms. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning my God turns my darkness, that sense of, turns it into light. Uh, another one, this is a psalm of lament. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Okay, so psalms of lament just pour out to God very honestly. Um, and complaints oftentimes are in there to God. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I think we can, we can associate with all of those. I think that makes a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of sense for us, and we get that. Um, then you come to Jesus in the Gospel of John, and you have all these recollections of Genesis chapter 1. And so it begins this way. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So darkness here is associated with evil and sin and lostness. And then in chapter 3, you know, shortly after the famous John 3.16, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So the association with evil. Darkness evokes fear. Darkness evokes evil, devastation. Think a dark alley. Think a dark closet, a dark basement, you know, all those, those kinds of of ideas. Now, Deep Abyss, that translation captures, I think, a little bit of that sense of, of fear. Um, most of the people in the ancient Near East, except the seacoast people, uh, were afraid of the sea. And you learn this from reading all the stuff from back there. It was a place of monsters. It's not a place that you really want to go. And you may say, uh, you, I think you're exaggerating about the monsters. I'm not exaggerating about the monsters. The New American Standard Version uh, is considered to be one of the most, like, literalistic translations, all right? 
Here's how it translates Genesis 1.20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. And God saw that it was good. All right, so one of the themes in the creation story and the Bible is that God doesn't do away with the darkness, he separates darkness from light, so it's, it put boundaries on darkness, and he doesn't do away with sea monsters, he actually creates them, but he puts them in the deep sea, there's boundaries on them. And the deep abyss is just a place of dread, of monsters, what are the monsters? They're these weird things that come up on shore every once in a while. They didn't have, remember, they didn't have scuba. They couldn't go underwater and take pictures. They didn't have National Geographic. They didn't have Jacques Cousteau. You know, they, they just didn't have any of that. All they had was every once in a while these creatures that would wind up dead on the shore. We're still fascinated by that. I still see those in my, in my news feed. And, uh, you know, this gigantic fish, the latest one was like a fish that was like two tons or something like that. And it's, I think they call that a sunfish, something like that. And, and, and it's just terrifying when you look at this. And sometimes they find animals and they say, we don't even know what this is. The experts don't even know what this is. I think they're exaggerating. But they got my attention, you know, by doing that. So the deep abyss is a place of dread and of fear. Wild and waste, we'll look at those two together just for a moment. These, these describe... Wild describes uninhabitable places, deserts, uh, those places, like I said, where you go and if something goes wrong, you die because you don't have water or the heat or whatever gets you. Um, wild and waste in Jeremiah, that phrase, it's the only other place in the Bible where it's used like that, wild and waste, and it describes the desolation after the Babylonians have come through. So the picture is of towns, cities leveled to the ground, and just fire coming out from the ground, from the burning, and then all the death that goes with that. That's, that's what wild and waste is. They live in a world where that kind of thing was always a present danger. We are kind of protected on our little island of North America, uh, and so it's very, we don't experience that very often. It's been, you know, well over 100 years since we've experienced that on our own land. But these people experience that, you know. They, if not in their own memories, they would have relatives that would pass on these stories, wild and waste. Now, the land was wild and waste, and darkness was over the face of the deep abyss. It's the stuff of horror movies. It's the dark attic, the basement, the haunted house, chainsaws. I hope... You never read verse 2 the same again. All right. Now, a word scholars often use to describe verse 2 on the first page is chaos. And if you're going to describe it, it's chaos, especially because of what follows. Right before God begins to bring order by creating light and creating realms and then filling those realms, and again, back to the first couple of weeks, we saw this literary design, this incredible literary design of chapter one, and it, it just exudes bringing order to, to chaos, repeated statements over and over again, this over against this, which relates to this. It's just this beautiful, beautiful, ordered type of thing. So right before God does that, 
Before he does that, there is this chaotic, horror-inducing conditions. And the order of creation that comes in chapters 1 and 2 is unraveled in Genesis 3. This is key to the story of God, to understanding the story. It's unraveled in Genesis 3. Sin is a lot of things, but if you don't see it as a disordering of the way that things are supposed to be, if you just kind of see it as like uh, breaking a commandment or something like that, if you don't see it as a disordering, you've missed more than half of the way that the Bible talks about sin. Sin is disorder, distortion, discord, disease, disintegration, decreation. Those are all words that are associated with sin in the Bible or ideas that are associated with sin. The glory of what God has done by means of the gospel will never hit home for you. It will never hit home for you until you see sin this way. Until you see sin this way, the glory of the gospel will always be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good story. I, I like it. It kind of gives me a way to live eternally. Uh, gives me hope in the face of death or in death of loved ones. The cross, Jesus on the cross, God paying our debt for unleashing chaos and disintegration into this world with every sin we commit. It'll always feel like, the cross will always feel like a divine overreaction. Like putting Jesus on the cross, the whole bloody mess of Jesus on the cross. It'll feel like, and even if you don't say it like that, in the back of your mind there's always going to be this like, Man, it just makes me so encouraged. It just seems like such an overreaction, God's reaction to sin. It's because you don't see sin for what it is. You don't see sin as it's described in the Bible. Sin unleashes horrors into our world. Your sin, my sin, unleashes horrors into our world. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga Jr., he wrote a book, one of the most influential theological books I've ever read. It's called not the way it's supposed to be. And the book came out in the 1990s. I took it off my shelf because of what I was preaching on uh, this week. And as I'm rereading portions of it, some of my underlining, I'm remembering, oh my goodness, I never recommend this book when people ask me, what are some of the most influential books in your life? Because I kind of forgot how it's permeated everything. Uh, Not everything, it permeates so much of what I, how I see the Bible and how I teach the Bible. It's had a profound impact on me. But he starts the book, it's where he gets the title for the book, not the way it's supposed to be. He starts the, the, the book by recalling a scene, kind of the opening scene of a movie uh, back from the 90s uh, called Grand Canyon. It stars uh, Danny Glover and Kevin Klein. And the story begins with the character played by Kevin Klein attending a Lakers game. He gets into his Lexus after the game. He gets stuck in a traffic jam, and he decides, I'm going to take a shortcut. So he just takes this road. And before long, he is in some really deserted parts of urban L.A. There's, like, no lights on. It's, it's scary. And he's driving, and his car dies. And then it's mid-'90s, so he has a, a mobile phone, a kind of car phone. It's about this big in his car, and he calls to get help, 
and the phone dies while he's talking. So he has to get out of his car in this dark, dark place, darkness, <laughs> and he walks to a convenience store that he eventually finds. He calls tow truck operator and goes back to his car to wait for the tow truck to come. But while he's sitting there, a car comes by filled with some youth, and it's very menacing, the, the feeling as he looks, and the music is blaring out of their car. And it's fine if they just drive by, drive by, but they don't. They circle around, they pull up behind them, they get out of the car, and they circle his car. And it's just terrifying. And the leader of this group of obviously gang members of some kind, they say, get out of the car. And he just tries to ignore it. Like, Nothing's happening here. Hopefully somebody will get here soon. And the guy goes like this, and he pats the bulge of a gun in his jacket. And so he realizes he's got to get out. He gets out of the car, and as he gets out of the car, the tow truck comes. Tow truck operator is played by Danny Glover. Glover gets out. He's got a tire iron in his hand. It's, a, it's obviously a kind of a protection, a weapon, but it's not going to do anything against five guys with a gun. And so, but he walks in. He just starts without saying anything. He starts connecting, you know, the car. And the gang leader guy just kind of said, basically, you're disrespecting me. You know, what are you doing? And Glover pulls him aside, says, come over here, and, they, and gets into a philosophical conversation with him. And it's so, such a great conversation. And what he says is so powerful that theologians have been quoting him for ever since. And so here's what he says. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Somehow it works. Somehow the gang leaves and they let him go about his work. It's like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and they leave. So building on this scene, uh, Plantinka writes this. He says, the, this is, it's in your outline. You're going to have to read this several times. Um, I apologize, but you'll get a little bit of it. It's pretty thick. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We talked about that when we did our justice series. Is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are being satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So where we see in our world flourishing and wholeness and delight, we're getting a little glimpse of Eden and we're getting a little glimpse of the Garden City we talked about last week, uh, where there is delight and there's joy and needs are fulfilled. There are no more tears. We read about it last week. And it comes out of a God who just wants to share that with 
his image bearers. Plantinga also speaks of humanity, this scene, uh, reversing when we sin. He calls it the vandalizing. Sin is the vandalizing of shalom. And that begins in Genesis 3. So, it's a little recap here. We start with chaos in verse 2. Then God brings order out of the chaos. You get a you get a little premonition of that right there in verse 2 when it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep of the deep uh, of the waters that actually even changes the waters from this deep abyss to to a different to a different word. So God brings order out of the chaos. There's universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, satisfaction and joyful wonder that happens in Eden, that's what's intended, but in chapter 3, humanity rejects God and sins. We vandalize shalom. And this becomes a pattern in the Bible. Uh, what uh, people who study this stuff call a design pattern that happens over and over again. And they also call it decreation. Creation moves from chaos to order. Sin reintroduces chaos. Sin is a decreation, a reversal, a going back to the chaos. It's a pattern that's used over and over again. You see it in the plagues. The plagues, some scholars think, actually are reversing creation that you see in chapter 1. It's all hyperlinked to that. You have it in the story of the flood. You have it in the story of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian. It's a pattern that comes up over and over again. It's a storytelling method. It's, not, it's telling what happened, but it uses a storytelling method that uses tropes, elements that have come earlier in the story and uses them over and over again. Um, uh, hyperlinks, we've, we've called them, or Easter eggs that are constantly there in the text. We live in a world that is chaotic now. It's a decreated world, all right? So, we come to the story of Jesus. He's the perfect man, and he is without sin. God, uh, uh, Paul calls him the second Adam. The first Adam was placed in a perfect garden. He experiences perfect shalom. The second Adam comes to our chaotic world. And on the last night on earth, he goes to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden that's placed in a world of chaos. It's a garden of chaos. What happens when the perfect man, the second Adam, who is without sin, finds himself in the garden of chaos, of disintegration, disorder, decreation, the world that we live in every day, the world that he came as a baby to live in, is not only truly God, but also truly a man. He's overwhelmed, he's anxious. He's filled with dread. Now, what's really interesting is that um, what he says about being so, um, what he says early, okay, so on that night, before he goes into the Garden of Eden, he's having the Last Supper. The Gospel of John has an extended section on the Last Supper, and, and so while he's at the Last Supper, uh, he says this. He says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. All right, so 
this, this is really instructive. The word believe, we oftentimes think is just, you know, mentally ascending. Uh, 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 what's the word I want? Saying, yes, okay, I, I believe that actually exists. God exists. Here it's obvious that it doesn't mean that, right? It's not, you believe in God. Uh, I also exist. <laughs> you know, he's not trying to prove it. Of course he exists. Belief is trust. You trust in God. Trust also in me. He also says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So he's promising peace. He's saying, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. But earlier, some in that upper room and some just before that, this is what it says. It says, now my soul is troubled. <laughs> Jesus, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He's facing the cross. He's facing betrayal by one of his own disciples. All of his friends are going to abandon him except for one. The leader of the pack is going to deny him three times. He's going to the cross where he's going to bear. He's going to bear on himself the penalty that we should pay for unleashing horror in our world. He's going to bear that himself. So if the perfect man, the second Adam, God the Son, experienced what can only be called, and those aren't the only words. I mean, it's like sweat drops of blood. He used a lot of other words to describe this. It can only be called extreme anxiety, distress in the chaos of our world. If that's so, anxiety isn't always a sin of faithlessness. It's how God created us to respond to chaotic conditions. It's a regular human limit. It's not something we have to confess as a sin. It's like, it's one of our limits because we are not God. Anxiety can be sinful. Think of it, I think, uh, think of it like anger where Paul says, be angry and sin not. So a lot of anger is sinful, but not all anger is sinful. I think it's like that with anxiety, but I think most anxiety isn't sinful. Some anxiety is. It reminds me of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. Uh, it's the one where he says, don't be anxious about anything. It's also the letter where he shares like multiple ways that he is anxious like no other letter. It's like maybe 2 Corinthians is the only one that comes close to it. I, you know, like, oh, you know, so-and-so didn't die. I'm so glad Epaphroditus didn't die because it was just anxiety upon anxiety. And then he's got other things that he says. It just, he just is pouring out. In the letter, he says, don't be anxious about anything. He shares his own anxieties. We looked at it last year in the Advent series. And this is what I, this is what I said last year. When Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, he's inviting us to experience God's peace. Jesus was doing that too. Don't let your heart be troubled. He's inviting us to experience God's peace, not only in all circumstances, but also in our anxiety, worry, and fear. The personal peace that God offers can bring calm and comfort 
but it doesn't always eliminate anxiety. And it certainly doesn't always eliminate the circumstances that brought on the anxiety, the causes. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Rid your mind and your heart and your faith and your discipleship of the emotional prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is? If you just have enough faith, God will make you a rich person. Obviously, people, the vast majority of people in the vast majority of the world just lack faith, right? It's going to make you really rich if you just have enough faith. The health uh, prosperity gospel is if you just have enough faith, God will heal you every time. Um, and all those people somehow die. The Bible invites us to experience joy in hard times and peace in chaos. But it doesn't promise to remove the trouble or the chaos from our lives. It doesn't even promise to, re- to, to remove the anxiety. It doesn't promise to remove the anxiety. As my friends who lost their daughter in a car accident explain it, just this devastating experience. They said, it is possible to have joy and extreme sorrow at the same time. And you know that's the case because it happens in your life. You've never, you've never been able to rise above anything. And if you do for just one of those moments where it's like everything is good in the world, just your next thought should be, I've got nowhere to go but down. (laughs) Because you're not going to stay there. It's guaranteed you're not going to stay there. The emotional prosperity gospel promises to remove all anxiety and fear and worry and grief if you only have enough faith. Apparently, Jesus didn't have enough faith as he faced the cross. We need to grow up spiritually. We need to read the Bible like mature adults and be able to live with the tensions that are not resolved for us. Because in in God's plan, they're not a tension. They're not a tension. We need to be able to read the Bible that way. The Bible offers much more complexity than the immature readings that we bring to the Bible. What can we learn from Jesus about the path through overwhelmed? Um, Four things. Want you to look at. And by the way, this is not to eliminate and say, oh, you don't need medication if you're experiencing chronic extreme anxiety. Um, you don't need therapy. This is not to say that. Those are all part of the ways that, um, thank God, that we have uh, those means. But just looking at Jesus, what are some things we can learn about the path through overwhelmed? The first thing is we learn to pray when we're feeling overwhelmed. And if you're feeling really overwhelmed right now and you say, I, I can't even pray, if you will just say that to God, you will be praying. That's how the Psalms, oftentimes. The, the prayer is, I don't know how to pray. And you're actually praying when you say that. Um, prayer is so important in the path through overwhelmed. Um, Jesus prays for God the Father to take what he's about to experience away. In our story of God, of course, we go into detail on that. What, what is he actually asking for and 
Why is he so distressed? But I, I just want you to notice that he asks for what he wants. What does he say? Take this away from me. But he prays a prayer of surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. Take this away from me, but not my will. And um, just ask God honestly. We also learn from Jesus to lean on your friends. Now, Jesus' friends kind of let him down in this case. They don't ultimately let him down, um, but they let him down. And our friends will let us down. And by the way, you are the friend that has let down a friend. And if not, I'll put you at the left hand of God. Jesus on the right, you're on the left, you know. Uh, you've let people down. So um, Jesus takes his closest friends deeper into the woods with him, the three, and, and they, they fall asleep when he asks them to stay awake. And so they fail him. And sometimes our friends fail us, but surround yourself with some friends that are not likely to fail you. <laughs> and some friends who have character. They shouldn't be your only friends. You should have a lot of friends that have no character. <laughs> We're on mission in this world, right? You should have some people around you that are not likely to turn away. What else do we learn? We learn to pray, to lean on friends. We learn to love your neighbor. I'll just say this. You're going to study this in your, if, you, if you're doing this for a small group, but um, Jesus is concerned for them. That's the interesting thing. He's concerned for them. He says, Watch and pray that you not fall into temptation. So he's actually watching out for them while he is like about to sweat drops of blood. He's so upset. And so sometimes in our anxiety, we just need to grab another person who is going through a hard time and do something for them. Take their hand, say, let's walk through this together. But, but, and sometimes we're too debilitated by anxiety. But if you're here today, you're not that debilitated. So you can grab someone else's hand and help them. And then finally, look for God's comfort. Luke's gospel is the only gospel that tells us God sent angels to minister to him, but God wouldn't speak to him. It's one of the most unusual things about this passage, right? Why does Jesus ask three times the same thing? You think he's arguing with God? He's not hearing from God. It's the only rational explanation. He's not hearing from God. But God sends angels. Now, when I'm really down and I'm, or I see somebody that I love who is just, going through depression, anxiety. I say, God, make your presence known to them. And, and I want it so badly, and I want it so badly for myself. And, that is, and sometimes that prayer is not answered. Make your presence known, felt. Jesus didn't feel it. But God sends angels, messengers. Sometimes you're not going to feel God's closeness, but you're going to have your friends. There, we're caring for it. They're sent by God. So look for God's comfort. Look for God's comfort. Let's begin our response to God's revelation of himself through his word. We respond here thinking about what Jesus did for us. He was asking, if you'll remember, he's asking for this cup of judgment to be removed from him if it be God's will. God doesn't remove it. He goes and experiences the cup of judgment. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He shed his blood on the cross. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scriptures tell us that wherever, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you love us this much. That when we rejected your invitation to live in your delight and to delight in you, to live in your glory, that you pursued us and your son was willing to take on himself the penalty for the horrors that we've unleashed. Father, I pray for anyone here today who's never received what you're offering, the grace that you're offering of forgiveness by putting their faith, their trust in you as Lord, as Savior. Father, I pray that they would do that even now. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.